please pray with me as we open up God's word. God, you are uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs. You are the God of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray that right now you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. I pray that you would illuminate our eyes to see Jesus Christ, even in this ancient uh, story of your people, just as they were leaving their centuries of of bondage in Egypt. And I pray that uh, you would deepen our trust in you as a result of our time this morning. And it's in Jesus's name that we pray. Amen. One of the Bible's fundamental teachings about the nature of God is that he is immaterial. That is to say, God does not have a, a body. We could also say God is not detectable to our senses, right? That is, we don't believe that you can see God, that you can hear him. We don't, most Christians don't believe that God still speaks from, from heaven. You can't uh, touch him, taste him. Or smell him. We might uh, paraphrase the words of Second Corinthians chapter five by saying that for now we walk by faith, not by our senses. But God has given His creation, uh, human beings, senses. We are we are sensory beings, and God knows. This is important. God knows that our use of senses is something that is fundamental. To our nature. And so therefore he has given his people throughout the ages sensory aids to assist us as we seek to live lives that are pleasing to him. And these aids, these helps uh, are a great blessing from God. And one of those is the Lord's Supper, which, as I mentioned earlier, is a meal that we will be able to celebrate in this sanctuary in a couple of weeks. Well, there's a story about the Lord's Supper that comes from the pages of church history that I think is worth repeating. And it's about an Englishman whose name was Charles Simeon. Uh, Charles Simeon was an evangelical. He ended up becoming a pastor and um He became a pastor in Cambridge, England. He was associated with the university, with Cambridge University. He was an academic uh, teaching fellow at the university, and he was buried in King's King's College Chapel, which if you've ever seen a picture of Cambridge, you've seen King's College Chapel. It is um, it's kind of the main uh, visual image that is affiliated with that city. Um, Now, this King's College is um, uh, in this story about Simeon has some personal significance to me because the first academic conference that I ever got to participate in was held at King's College, Cambridge. And uh, so as I, I read my first academic paper before this group of scholars, I was exactly across the quadrangle from this venerable building, the King's College Chapel. And I, I do remember thinking to myself, I, I first of all want to honor God in everything I say. But secondly, I kind of also hope that I'll honor uh, Charles Simeon by the things, uh, the things that I say. Well, anyway, Simeon became one of the foremost leaders of what we might call vibrant evangelical faith in the early part 
of the 1800s. Now, a little bit about his story. When Simeon was 19 years of age, he went to Cambridge University, but he was not a believer. But one of the requirements for studying at Cambridge is that you had to participate in the Lord's Supper. And this struck terror in Charles Simeon's heart, because even though he wasn't a believer, he knew that there was something awful about inappropriately participating in the meal of the Lord's Supper. So he was terrified. So what he did for several weeks leading up to this really forced communion he was going to have to take is he tried to get himself ready. He uh, read some Christian books. He tried to pray and kind of get himself into the right frame of mind and, and just nothing worked. But then he read a book which was a which was written by a Christian bishop, an Anglican bishop. who was a very faithful Anglican bishop which describes what the Lord's Supper is. And listen to what Charles Simeon wrote about this book. In Passion Week, March of 1779, as I was reading Bishop Wilson in his writings on the Lord's Supper, I read an expression to this effect, that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. And the thought came to my mind, what? May I transfer all of my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then God willing, I will not bear them on my soul one moment longer. Accordingly, he wrote, I sought to lay my sins upon the head of Jesus. And on the Wednesday, I began to have a hope of mercy. On the Thursday, that hope increased. On the Friday and Saturday, it became even more strong. And on the Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, April 4th, I awoke early with these words upon my heart and lips. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And from that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior. Isn't that wonderful? For Simeon, it was like fear of the Lord's Supper instilled in him a fear of who? Of the Lord. The Lord, we might say, used the Lord's Supper to draw Simeon to Jesus Christ, to a true and living faith. And you know what? God did something identical or almost identical with the children of Israel just before they launched out into the wilderness. In the passage that we're going to study this morning, we see that these were, uh, this was immediately after the children of Israel began to march out of Egypt. They went from one spot to another, but we, they've not yet gotten to the edge of the Red Sea where we know the Lord is going to part the waters, right? Now, God's going to part the Red Sea, but we're going to have to wait until the fall to read about that, okay? So we'll stop with chapter 13 here. But God knows that they're about to launch out into the wilderness wilderness for 40 years and he knows that they need all the help that they can get. And so this morning in Exodus 12 and 13, we're going to see that God gives sensory reminders to assist the life of faith. God gives sensory reminders to assist the life of faith. And we do well to not neglect them. 
So we're going to see, I want you to notice this, that in, in three different ways, we, we might say that God condescended uh, to what the children of Israel needed. And he gave some aids, some assistances to them. And, and here they are. He gave first a meal to taste. Second, a story to hear. And third, a pillar <clears throat> to see. So a meal to taste, <clears throat> a story to hear. And a pillar to see. First is a meal to taste. Look with me at verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may, may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. So this first section, it largely repeats a lot of the first description of the Passover, which was at the beginning of chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Only here, um, Moses addresses the question now, well then, if that's the Passover we're supposed to observe, who can observe the Passover, right? Who's allowed to participate? Now, here's the question that, that we should be asking. Why does Moses circle back around to this? Had something changed between the beginning of chapter 12 and now, starting with verse 43? Had there been a change? Everybody say yes. Right. OK, the four of you. Great. Yes. Something had changed. So what was the change? Well, the change was what happened when they initially uh, withdrew from the land of Goshen, from the land of Egypt. You remember, if you look back, <clears throat> you can do that now. You can look back at chapter 12, verse 37. It says that 600,000 men, as well as women and children, left, uh, left the land and they, um, uh, uh, they, they took their first steps out of Egypt. And look what verse 38 says. Who went with them? Was it just the Hebrews? It was not just the Hebrews. It was a what? A mixed multitude of people who departed with them. You know who they were? Were they Hebrews? No, they were not Hebrews. They were Gentiles. They were Goyim. Okay? Goyim, that's the Hebrew, the fancy Hebrew word for, for Gentile. So you see, the question is... We've got all these foreigners who are mixed in with the Hebrew people. And how are they going to honor the God of the Hebrews? Is this meal for them or is it just for the Hebrews? Are they allowed to eat the Passover? And what's the answer? The answer is, can foreigners eat the Passover meal? No, absolutely not. Look at verse 43. No foreigner shall eat of it. Verse 45. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. They cannot remain foreigners if they want to participate in the Passover. They have to become what? Hebrews. They have to become the children of Israel. And how does that happen? Verse 48 tells us. If a stranger sojourns with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he can come near and keep it. He shall then be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. See, you can eat this meal 
in gratitude and in gratitude for God and in worship of him. But you have to become one of us. You have to become circumcised. You you know what I think this should should teach us is that God is a God of fairness, equity and impartiality. And I would even go so far as to say that verse 49 is revolutionary. Verse 49 was unprecedented among all of the the nations at the time, all of the cultures, what are known as the ancient Near Eastern cultures. Look at verse 49. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. This is so significant. You know what it means? It means that God does not have one standard or set of standards for his people. And then a totally different set of standards for those who are not his people. Right. God is absolutely fair and consistent in his dealings with people. But I would say that this is beyond fairness. This is really sublime. It's remarkable that there's one law for the Hebrews, for the non-Hebrews. But if you're not a Hebrew, you've got to become a Hebrew. You've got to become a child of Abraham through this ritual of circumcision. All right. So that's the first way that the children of Israel and the nations were to remember the Lord in the wilderness. They had this meal. But secondly, God also gave them a story to hear. Look at chapter 13, starting in verse three. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. Can't you remember going back earlier in Exodus again and again and again? The Lord said it will only be by a strong hand by which. Uh, uh, the people, my people will be brought out. I will compel Pharaoh by a strong and mighty hand. Well, and that's what happened. No leavened bread shall be eaten today in the month of Abib. You are going out. That would be late March, early April. Verse five. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. So verses one through seven basically give a recap of what was found earlier in chapter 12, verses one through twenty one. But watch what's written in verse eight. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt and it, by the way, the it there, I believe, is the Passover story that you're to tell. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. These these uh, this memorial between your eyes is what is known as phylacteries. Have you heard of that phylacteries or um, a tefillin is the is the original word. It's these little small leather boxes that uh, modern day Jews take in, in within those little boxes are very tiny scrolls of portions of the Torah. And so in their in their worship practice, they'll take these and they'll place them on their eyes and that sort of thing. The idea here is that you are to remember this from generation to generation to generation. Never forget it. This story is so utterly important. That's what he requires of the children of Israel to repeat this story. Keep it before you at all times 
The Jews in those days, the children of Israel, were just as inclined as you and I are to forget the good news about the redeeming God. God says, tell it to your children so that they can tell it to their offspring. And you know what they were telling their children, really? The testimony, right? We, we use that word in, um, in churches today. Someone's going to give their testimony. Well, this testimony was not a personal testimony. It really was a testimony or a story recounting the story of God and his great works and acts of of redemption. It's not what the children of Israel did for God, but it's what God did for the children of Israel. The idea is uh, kids, uh, your mom and I and all of our all of our family, we were slaves at one point. We were slaves in Egypt and God graciously brought us out. Uh, children, um, the Lord sent an angel, an angel of death. And, and he came to our house, but he passed over our house because we, we honored God by offering a lamb as a sacrifice and smearing that blood over the door. And what's the what's the message? What's the message they were to give? Well, it continues in verse 14. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him by a strong hand. The Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets. There it is again between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Kids, that's why we eat this meal, because the great God redeemed us. And we dare not forget. You know, folks, isn't it true that your heart and soul is, is uh, your heart and soul are knit together with people around you, with family and with loved ones through stories, through uh, mutually told stories. There's something ritual like, isn't there, in recounting stories. I experience this whenever I'm with my extended family. About a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, I was at the beach. And whenever my extended family is together, we tell stories, right? I mean, we usually laugh about things. You remember when so-and-so did this thing that time? We reminisce. And isn't it true that those are the things that, that knit us together, that we, we share a common story Remembering the great story of redemption, it not only uh, knits you together with other believers, but who else does it knit you with? To God, right? Our redeeming God. His story is the greatest story that has ever been told. Now, in verses 2 and 13 and 14, you probably thought... Well, wait, these are weird. Why aren't you talking about these verses? And we don't have time. I'm not going to say too much about them. Uh, this idea of um, redeeming the firstborn with a lamb and if it won't be redeemed to break its neck, to kill it. You know, what is what is this talking about? Well, I'll just give you this one sentence. The idea of dedicating the firstborn, whether it be an animal or a or a child, dedicating the firstborn to the Lord was the family's way of saying all of us. All of our family, all that we have, all that we will ever have in future generations belong to you, God. That's that's what it meant to to redeem an animal or or a person. So that's the second thing. In order that the children of Israel would remember the Lord in the wilderness, he gave them stories. But thirdly, he promised guidance, and that is through this pillar. So look with me at verse 17. He gave them a pillar to see. 
when Pharaoh let the people go. God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. God knew that the children of Israel were there's a technical expression for this kind of fancy. What's the technical word for what they were? Scaredy cats, right? Or or fraidy cats. That that would be fine. I mean, he knew that they were not sturdy people. After all, they had been what for for generations slaves, not soldiers. They didn't know how to do battle. They didn't know how to fight. And God knew that there was going to be battle and fighting that was going to be required for them to enter into the promised land. And so so the Lord led them a different way in verse 18. God led the people around. By the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. You remember the last few verses in Genesis for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So at night, a pillar of fire. We don't know exactly what this was. It was something like a pillar going up into the sky. They could be led by the presence of God with this vision of fire. But during the day, there was a column, evidently, of of cloud that was going up to the sky that would lead them during the day. God gave them a visible sign of his presence to guide them all along the way in the years that would be up ahead. See, they would soon need God's deliverance from the armies of Pharaoh. As I said, we'll, we'll get to that in August or September when we jump back into Exodus. But beyond that, God at this point has provided them with all that they need. A meal to taste, a story to hear, and a pillar to see. It's kind of, imag- it's kind of odd, isn't it, to imagine this kind of ragtag group of, group of people. There's hundreds of thousands of them. At this point, and they're about to just launch out into into just barren wasteland of of the wilderness with this strange box of Joseph's bones tucked under Moses's arm. This is not auspicious. You know, this is not real hopeful that, well, I'm sure they're going to do great things like great things are in store for this group of people. Well, you know, that's the way God's story of redemption usually works. God usually comes to people who are a total wreck and then builds them up and makes them into something. I've said it again and again, haven't I, that for the first 40 years of Moses' life, he thought he was something. The next 40 years, God showed him he was nothing. And the next 40 years, God was finally able to use him. Very similar to what's going to happen with the children of Israel. Well, you know, what do we do with this? I mean, is there any way to apply this to today? Well, I want to give three very quick suggestions that that I hope might help you. And and the first is actually tasting. Um, You know, we will have our first communion service in two Sundays, as I've as I've said. And, uh, you know, now 
might be a, a wonderful way for you to prepare your heart for that. Of course, we don't any longer celebrate the Passover meal, but we celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember uh, what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. It's a good time now to begin to get your heart ready and to, and to treasure and to value that. And, and my suspicion is that in this church and in churches all over this country and around the world, there will be a deep and a very profound and lasting memory of the meal that we get to have because we've been unable to do that for months. I pray God's blessing on that now. Secondly, you and I, as I said earlier, we're not much different from the children of Israel. We're really not. We do have the indwelling spirit, those of us who are trusting Christ, which is wonderful. But we need to hear the story of redemption again and again and again. We need to be reminded of that. That's one of the big reasons why we gather for worship, why, why we gather to hear the gospel read and, and to, hear it, to hear it preached. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes my Bible reading in my devotional time, it can get kind of perfunctory or, or stale. And one of those little tricks that I sometimes use that, that helps me uh, to kind of prod me, I guess you could say, is instead of reading silently, I'll be sitting by myself and I'll read the scriptures out loud. But there's something to that hearing the word of God as you're reading it to yourself. That might be something that you could you could try. But it's so vital that we hear God's word. And thirdly, seeing, well, what can we nurture? How can we nurture faith through seeing? If you're if you're a, a very uh, profound student of the Bible, you're probably thinking of uh, the commandment against graven images, right? I mean, we got to be careful. What should we use uh, images or something visible in the worship of God? We're completely forbidden from doing that. So I guess we can't see God. So don't bother Trying to see God. Is that, is that the right answer? I don't think it is. And, and I want you to, to, to focus here with me for the next, next couple moments especially. I want to suggest that there is a monumental reversal that happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, if you saw God, you would die. In the New Testament... If you don't see God, you will die. What does that mean? <laughs> well, in the Old Testament, it's understood that, that no human creature could look on, look on God, look on the face of God and, and live. We know that later in Exodus, Moses is the only person who came close to seeing God in Exodus 34. But the idea is he didn't look at the face of God, but he actually saw something like the backward parts, you know, like God's heel or, or, or something like that. In the Old Testament, if you were to see God, you would, you would die. But what I want to suggest in the New Testament is it's exactly the opposite. If you don't see God, you will die. What do I mean? Well, second Corinthians chapter three, verses 17 and 18 say that now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding what does beholding mean looking upon, looking upon the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit we must behold the glory 
of the Lord. Are we able to behold the glory of the Father? No, absolutely not. We will behold the glory of the Father. That's what Revelation 20 verse 4 says, which I think is the greatest hope of heaven, that we will look on his face. But for now, we can't look on his face. But nevertheless, you have to look if you want to live. Didn't Jesus say that about himself in John chapter 3? Remember, Jesus said that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and if you wanted to to live, you had to look at it. So also the father will lift up the son. Jesus said this in, in John 12. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If you don't look on God, namely his son, Jesus, you have no life in you and you will not live. And so now I, I call upon you and, and, and I urge you to look upon the face of Jesus Christ. That is where you find eternal life is in him. What that means is not going off and getting into like some meditative trance, but to get your mind and your heart and your soul stirred up in this word. Go back to the Gospels and read about the Jesus who offers to save you and to change your life. We see Jesus in this one place most clearly in the Bible. God in Christ has to be seen by your spiritual eyes or you have no life in you. And so it is to Jesus, of course, that I now direct you to turn to him, look upon him and you will live. I pray that by God's grace, you would do that. Now, let me close this in prayer. God, we thank you that you are a truly condescending God. What a wonderful benefit that is to us. We are so small. You are so awesome that you have to condescend to us. And you do in so many ways, Lord, through providing things tactile, intangible things that that our small souls need so that we can cling to you. We thank you for the meal of the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the great story of redemption that you've given to us. We thank you for all that you've given to us and done for us. And especially that we are invited now to look on the face of Jesus Christ and in so looking to live in him. And I pray that whether believer or unbeliever right now, whether born again or living in the flesh, all who hear these words would turn to Jesus Christ now and live. It's in his name we pray. Amen.